and welcome to FN Hormones. It's the podcast about perimenopause and beyond. I'm Emma Goldswell, and if you've not heard us before, it's not just me, it's me and my three mates, Helen, Bina and Terry. Now, we've all grappled with our hormones in one way or another. And we all got fed up with the fact that there's been this massive taboo around perimenopause and menopause. So, we decided to talk about it. In a slightly sweary but supportive way. Because that feels appropriate at this time of life. So, welcome to Series 3. I know. And exciting news, gang. In this episode, you're going to hear from someone who is a real leading light when it comes to raising awareness about perimenopause and menopause. And that is Dr. Louise Newson. Yep, we've only got the menopause doctor herself. A few of you have been in touch with us with your questions too. So strap yourself in for a good old chin wag with her a little bit later. But first, time to catch up with the gang, Terry, Bina and Helen. So I've got to talk about another award for effing hormones. Oh, my word, they're like buses, aren't they? Yes, this time we've only gone and just won an award for the International Women's Podcast Awards, gang. Yay! Go on, what was it? What was the category, Emma? Well, I went all the way to that London, very excited, uh, because we were nominated in not one but two categories. So there was only about eight or ten categories, and we managed to get nominated for two. And uh, one of the categories was Changing the World One Moment at a Time. So a bit of a bit of a weighty one that, and the other award was for moment of comedy gold. So of course I had a little think in my hotel room before I went, and I thought I'm going to have to really write. You know, I don't write speeches word for word, but I wrote. I've written notes for both, and I actually was well thinking, done. yeah, I wrote all these notes, and I thought, oh god. In a way, I actually hope we win comedy gold because. In a way, that's more of achievement, isn't it? Surely anyone can change the world, but who can be funny about the frigging menopause? Not anyone, that's what I reckon. And lo and behold, we did. We won. The moment of comedy gold. And it, you know what? It was a lovely, lovely evening, actually. I think it, it may have been a smaller event than the one you guys went to. It was a beautiful event in a very swanky um private club in Covent Garden and there's probably I'm not very good at numbers but I'm going to guess there was maybe like 250 women in the room and it was mainly women uh, non-binary people there was about five men there out of about 250 people so it was quite ironic when we were the first award nominated and it was a man handing me the award and he said the irony is not lost on me the first award's been given out by a man but it was very very good and actually I'd written I'd messaged a friend before I went saying Guys, I don't got any jokes about the menopause because if I'm getting up on the stage to accept an award for comedy gold, I'm gonna have to be fucking funny, aren't I? <laughs> I don't have like the immense pressure. Anyway, my friend messaged me and went, oh, what about you could say, um earlier my, my girlfriend said I had a really hot body and then I realised she was just talking about my menopause symptoms. <laughs> but I didn't go with that one in the end. I just went because they were all clapping. It was a lovely, lovely supportive Aww. room full of really inspiring women and they were all clapping and I just went, oh, this is so lovely. It's giving me a lovely warm feeling inside which for once is not a menopause symptom. Yeah. Anyway, so they liked Your that. speech was fantastic. Super proud of you, Ems. Oh, well done. Bless you. It was, and 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 also like how badass are all the women who nominated winners? All of them, like yeah, podcast, yeah. Sounds like a fantastic event. It, do you know what? It was one of the best parties I've been to. Well, definitely since bloody COVID, because I was just in a room full of loads of really talented, passionate, thoughtful women that had just like taken their passion and made a podcast out of it, very like ourselves, and it was just so inspiring being in a room with all those brilliantly talented women it was just brilliant it was just such a fun evening and I may have drunk too much wine and had to go home and eat the kebab in bed but that's another story (laughs) good girl you're still raving there Emma still raving (laughs) so listen last time we met up we were all talking uh, we touched on body hair we had a little chat about that and we talked about like busting the taboo on body hair there's a new series of The Wire coming isn't there God, now listen, I know we talk about a lot of serious stuff on this podcast, right? But you can always rely on me to point out the, um, uh, maybe the vainer things, because I, I was banging on about collagen and looking at my jowls and all this, that and the other in, in the in the first series. Um, anyway, recently, um, 
I have discovered that my eyebrows are going crazy. Has anyone noticed this? <gasps> like my eyebrows. I, if I can push my eyebrows up, right? Do you remember Dennis Healy and Spitting Image? <laughs> right? Norman Lamont. Honest to God. Because I've got like dark brown eyebrows. I used to have red oh, hair. Originally, wow. I'm, <laughs> obviously, I'm a natural blonde. Not. But um, I've got these like ginger curly hairs like growing out of my eyebrows. And I'm like, what is going on? Why have I got curly red hairs coming out of my eyebrows, making me look like Dennis Healy? Has anyone else noticed this? Yeah. I met him in real life. His his eyebrows were that bad. Yeah. (laughs) That is really bizarre. And you're not getting ginger bits anywhere else then? No. Emma, that is a very personal question and one I'm not prepared to answer. (laughs) That's a yes then. (laughs) (laughs) That's totally a yes, You've got ginger pubes now. (laughs) I've actually got red. Do you not know that I've actually got red hair? No. Well, I used to have red I've hair. Seen, I've seen it dyed red, I think. So my hair, when I, was a, when I was a kid, okay, so my natural hair when I was growing up was sort of chestnut red hair, but I had dark eyebrows and dark eyes. And then in my 30s, it went a kind of weird brown colour. So I started dyeing it red because I was like, oh, I was, de- I was gutted that I didn't have red hair anymore. And then since then, I've just kind of gone crazy and it's been blue and it's been purple and, it's, and now it's what they call um, ash blonde, which is basically grey. So that's why I think I'm getting these like ginger curly things coming, sprouting out of my eyebrows. Is this seriously not happening to you guys? Is this just literally happening to me? If I got ginger sprouty hair, I'd look like a Duracell battery. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have to be ginger. I'm just saying, are your, is your eyebrow hair not getting longer? Is it going weird? Yeah. Like, I, mine's going I, weird. I have to say I haven't noticed it, Helen, but, you know, I'm glad to report that I haven't noticed that on my own forehead. I don't know, love. I'm I'm Asian. I'm I'm South Asian, so you know we have hair issues. Full stop. Uh, okay, just me then. Right. Listen, if any if anyone listening is having this problem, don't let me feel like I'm on my own. Get in touch. Finhormones.com. <laughs> We've got an email address on there. Yeah, I need a support group. I need an eyebrow support group. Thanks. So, Beanie and Terry, how are you girls getting on? How are you doing? I'm all good. Nothing to report, really. Oh, that's good to hear. My body's working fine. That is good to hear. Hooray. Terry? Yeah, better than I've ever been, actually, for a change. Got nothing to whinge about at the moment. I'm quite happy. So, yeah, all good. Good to hear. Yes, well, you say back to normal. I am actually It makes on... a change, doesn't it? It does make a change for us lot, to be honest. But, uh, yeah, you say back to normal, but I'm actually on my summer holiday um, as we speak. And I have a cautionary tale for anyone going away who is on HRT. Please check you've got enough to last your holiday because... I thought, oh, I'll be absolutely fine. I'll just get another prescription. I've come to a foreign country, it seems. I've come to Wales. Get this, a completely different NHS system. They're not on the computerised system that England are on. So I couldn't just get my normal prescription. What I had to do was get my GP to go back to 1995 and send a fax to Fishguard in Boots. And that's what happened. And if my GP wasn't still stuck in 1995 with a fax machine, then I wouldn't have my HRT top up and I would have run out on holiday. So I wasn't that lucky. So Wow. For fact's sake. Yes, for fact's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I would have run oh, out of um, my progesterone tablets. You've, you've missed yes. me, haven't you, gang? No, you've we have, me. darling. We've we missed that. So, Emma, what would have ha- were you starting to panic? How were you feeling about it? How close were you getting to running out? And- well, I... Th- I don't know because I've never run out of progesterone. I've got I've got my HRTs in three separate bits. So I've got my estrogen gel, mm. I've got my testosterone gel, and then I've got progesterone tablets. So I've never just run out of one of the three. Mm. So I didn't know what was going to happen, but I didn't really want to find out. Fair so enough. I was starting to get a little bit panicky. Okay. Um, but thanks to the power of facts and the fact that Boots and Fishguard and my GP in Manchester both still own fax machines, I've got my HRT. Thank you very much. Woo! Let's have a big clap for the fax. Let's have a big clap for the GP. And let's have a big clap for Boots and Fishguard. Well done. Well done. (laughs) Other chemists are available. There is also a Lloyd's. Now, it's a bit of a different episode, this one. There is so much to talk to Louise about. We've decided to dedicate most of this episode to her. But we need to say some more thank yous because you've been amazing. You've been chipping in to help us make effing hormones. Thank you so, so much for that. Helen, you've got a few people to name check, haven't you? Who's winning our effing award for supporting the podcast? Oh, yeah, definitely. You all get an effing award. 
thank you so, so much to Sarah, Catherine. I'm saying Mrs. C because I don't want to do your full name just in case. But anyway, I think you'll know who you are. Chelsea, Laura, Janet, you all rock. Thank you so, so much. Just a reminder, if you can bung us a few quid our way, it would really help us get the Effing Hormones message out to more people. You can find the donate button on the Effing Hormones website, effinghormones.com. Click on the star above where it says, be an effing star. Thank you, guys. Now, there is one person who you have probably heard us mention more than anyone else here on Effin Hormones, and that is Dr. Louise Newson. Louise is a GP and a menopause specialist. She's one of the leading voices on the menopause in the UK. She's also the director of Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Centre in Stratford-upon-Avon. More recently, Louise, of course, released the Balance website and app, which is all about making menopause supports more accessible. Then she only went and set up the Menopause Charity, which is all about working with healthcare professionals and individuals to support them too. Oh, and let's not forget, she's also the author of the number one best-selling book, Preparing for the Perimenopause and Menopause. I'm exhausted just hearing about all of that, but thank you so much. And welcome to Effin Hormones. It's only Dr. Louise Newson. <laughs> First of all, we have to start, we're probably going to end with this as well, but just a massive thank you to everything that you've done for women like us and across the world, really, Louise. I guess that's something you hear quite a lot, isn't it? Oh, that's really kind. Yeah, but you know what? I'm not someone that sits and rests on my laurels. I just feel like I've only just started, to be honest. So there's a lot more that is needed to be done and a lot more than I'm planning. So don't worry, I haven't stopped. Yay. Pleased to hear that. <laughs> good. That is good to hear. We'll hear, find out all about it over the next uh, 40 minutes or so. Um, right, I want to find out a bit more about you. And, you know, unfortunately on this podcast, it does end up getting fairly personal because we do share our own menopause stories. And obviously we want to hear about your career. But I think I'd be more interested to start with what the menopause was like for you. And were you as, well, you can't have been as clueless as I was because I was spectacularly clueless but what was it like for you and what what were the first signs well it's interesting because I was clueless for myself but I wasn't clueless in general so I was um it was in 2015 so the nice menopause guidance had just come out I'd just been awarded a fellow of the Royal College of GPs and I wanted to change direction in my career and become a menopause specialist and run a menopause clinic and I actually sat in a clinic with um Professor John Studd who's now sadly died who was a real sort of tour de force really he did a lot of what I'm trying to do all the time and when I sat in his clinic I said John how do you know if someone's perimenopausal he said Louise it's really obvious I said is it because like in general practice I was very good at menopause but not really perimenopause no one talked about it no one taught me about the menopause but let alone the perimenopause so I said really John I said I'm trying to think of some of my patients I don't think I've ever seen any perimenopausal women anyway then I decided I wanted to write the website, which used to be called menopausedoctor.co.uk, and we changed it to balance high for menopause. So I started to write some content, and I was also wanting to set up a clinic, and I've got three children, and I remember it being November time and just feeling constantly tired and irritable and saying to my husband, oh, I'm just too tired to do all this stuff, and my children kept saying, oh, you're not listening to me, you're forgetting this, and I do quite a lot of yoga, and my yoga practice was terrible my joints were stiff my muscles were sore and I just kept looking at this tummy that I was getting spinning over my jeans and thinking oh this isn't right then I was getting max back migraines and and I also kept waking up with night sweats but I thought I had lymphoma which is a type of blood cancer because as a doctor you never think of the obvious things of course so all of these things were happening to me and I kept saying to my husband, oh, I want to set up this clinic, but I'm just exhausted. I don't think I've got the energy to do it. And this went on for quite a few months. Um, and then actually my daughter, who was 11 at the time, I was shouting at her because she was late going to bed or something stupid and trivial. And she just looked at me and said, Mommy, you are so horrible to be with. Do you think you might need your period? Because you're a bit like some of my friends before their periods. <laughs> and I looked at her and I just went, oh, good God, Sophie. I haven't had a period for months. It's so obvious now. My night sweats, my brain fog, my memory problems, my joint pains, my headaches, my everything. It was all there. 
But I just hadn't put the pieces together because I was thinking, well, I'm tired because I'm working too hard. She's a future GP in the making, isn't she? Yeah, I know. I know. So then you just think, this is awful. But then the worst thing, I suppose, about it was that I know enough about HRT to know I wanted HRT to feel better, but also to improve my future health. But I knew that my local GP wouldn't prescribe it because they don't, they just think it's too risky. So as a white, middle-class, educated woman who's a menopause specialist and a GP, I couldn't get HRT on the NHS. So I think my own personal experience is actually one of my big drivers. My other big driver for my work is the patients and women I liaise with. But actually I say, well, if I can't get help, how can other people who, you know, I'm very fortunate. I've got a stable relationship. I've got adoring family. I can afford to go and see someone, but even all the money in the world wouldn't get me a private appointment with a person I needed because that clinic was oversubscribed. So you just think, actually, goodness, if I didn't have English as my first language, if I was a single mum with, you know, more children and no job and everything else, and I, I couldn't be an advocate for myself, then what happens? So, so that was one of the reasons of trying to, you know, develop the app and the education that I do and everything else because I'm very ashamed that I've got a clinic. I'm very embarrassed that I have a private clinic. It should Everyone should be able to get their own hormones back on the NHS, shouldn't they? But that happened for a reason, didn't it? You didn't want to go down the private route at all. T- tell us what happened, how you ended up setting up the private clinic. Well, so when I wanted to... Um, do more menopause work. I, I actually was doing some training on the day the NICE menopause guidance came out and I'd already gone to a few local um, CCGs and hospitals to say I'd like to run a menopause clinic and they said, no, we don't have any funding. The priority is uh, cardiovascular disease, diabetes. I said, yeah, but that's all part of menopause. Oh, no, 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 we don't need menopause. It's just not important enough. Um, And so then at the same time, so I was in my mid-40s then, quite a few of my friends who were a few years older than me or my age were experiencing lots of symptoms but coming out from their GPs being given antidepressants. And I was saying, well, I've never given antidepressant for the menopause or perimenopause, so what's going on? And they said, well, I can't get anything else. So then one of my mentors said to me, Louise, you're just going to have to set up privately. And I said, but why would I do it privately? I'd never wanted to do private medicine at all. And she said, well, that's the only way you're going to be able to help some friends or whatever. So I just, it's a bit of a laugh really, I would just say, well, I'll just do one day a week. And I opened my clinic, it was, well, seven years ago now, mm. in the August time. And I, I didn't advertise it. I just thought, well, I'd just see one or two patients a week and just help some of my friends, local mums from school. And then quite quickly, I was seeing women who were traveling for miles. We didn't do video consultations then. So I remember my sort of second patient I saw in the clinic, she was 48, lovely lady. She traveled down from Edinburgh. So she'd got a train, she'd got a bus, she'd stayed overnight. She came to see me. She told me that 10 years ago, she'd given up her job and her partner had left her and she was really struggling and she'd been on five different antidepressants and... Um, having all these symptoms and I said well hang on a minute what happened 10 years ago she said well my ovaries removed I had a uh, my ovaries removed because I've got BRCA genes so I've got family history of breast cancer so I had my ovaries removed and I said well did anyone talk to you about the menopause or hormones this she said no not at all but since that time I've been really struggling so I thought well I'll give you some hormones back then and um, three months later she comes skipping into the clinic and you know the rest is history as they say completely transformed and I just thought this is awful I had no idea that people weren't getting what they wanted because as me as a GP if someone came in and asked for HRT then of course we'd have a conversation but you know it's the same with anything in medicine you share um, and talk to patients so it, it just sort of spiraled out of control really so four years ago we opened a dedicated menopause and well-being centre um, in Stratford-upon-Avon but we now see over 4,000 women a month and you know, we see women from all socioeconomic classes, from all backgrounds. We see people from every single county, bar two in the UK. Um, and the stories keep coming, actually. So it's a re- it's, it's, it's very transformational medicine. I love my clinic. I've been in clinic all day today and I've seen a lot of people I've known for a few years. And it's lovely. You know, a lady I saw today, when I saw her six months ago, she was suicidal and really struggling with her hormones and giving up her job and just came as a completely melted mess in front of me and 
Today, she was crying and laughing at the same time and said, I can't believe I'm the same person. I have my life back. I can function and I can get, I can work. I can just do jobs at home that I've never done for many years. So I, I love it because I'm making people feel better, but I know I'm investing in their future health, their bones, their heart, their brain is going to be better. But I really see a tiny minority of women, don't I? Yeah, but it must be so rewarding to change lives around like that. But it wasn't always the case. Was it, you know, you get all this great feedback, but you also had a lot of negativity from other GPs and from the own your own medical establishment, didn't you, in the early days? Can you tell us a bit more about that? I still do, I'm afraid. Wow, it's that's that's not getting any easier, I'm afraid. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of bullying, there's a lot of misogyny, there's a lot of toxicity, and a lot of hostility actually from others about my work. Um, so it all sounds and looks lovely, doesn't it? But there are many times, even now, that I just crumble into a mess with my husband and say, I just want to give it all up. It's not what I wanted, but I'm in it a bit too deep now, so I can't. <laughs> We're so so many people are so grateful to you, Louise, and, and it's uh, it, it, that's that's horrible to hear that you've got so much pressure. What are they saying that you shouldn't be giving out hormones? Well, I think you know, I think there's a lot of yeah, there's there's a lot of misunderstanding, but you know, I I try not to dwell on the negativity because there is a lot of positivity, and there's a great you know, it's not my work; it's a team effort. What I'm doing, you know, I work with some amazing people and every single person I work with I really trust and you know I couldn't have expanded a speed and done what I've done if if I just was a lone worker so I'm very very fortunate um, and luckily the negative noises are, are quieter than the positive noises but they're important noises that are negative and you know there's lots of people that still think HRT is a lifestyle drug and people take it because they want to be like Davina so the whole Davina effect and you know, I've been at meetings where they said it's outrageous that women are now asking for their hormones. And I don't think it is outrageous, is it, that women want to have something that's evidence-based? Can I just ask them, the, the kind, the, those kinds of comments, like where in the medical establishment, obviously don't name individuals, but what kind of quarters are they coming from? Is it more academic? Is it, you know, is it more... It's a bit of... It, it, there, there's a bit, and I, I think about it a lot. So I'm not here to be rude about healthcare professionals because there's a lot of people that are working in every hard and everybody wants to do the best of their ability. But I think what's happening is I'm challenging some behaviours that haven't been challenged before. And, you know, for 20 years, we've all been told, haven't we, how dangerous hormones are. And I'm not... I'm not, I'm not doing, I am doing research, but I'm not showing anything different. But what I am doing is just unpicking the evidence and going back to the basics and really just saying, how can our own hormones be dangerous? You know, it, it's just sort of, um, I think I'm probably because I'm a bit mouthy, really, that I think that makes people feel a bit uncertain. But I think also there's a lot of fantastic GPs and healthcare professionals out there that that do give HRT, that do listen to women, that do share decision-making. And those are the ones that think that I'm just being unnecessarily rude. What they don't realise is the thousands of people that I see either through my clinic or speak to through social media are not having the same experience from their GPs. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard it on, you know, your various platforms of women who are being given antidepressants, being told... You know, go and buy a relaxation tape. It's only the menopause. You know, it's not going to last long. This this whole sort of suppression of women, I feel really sad about, actually, because I can't think of anything else in medicine where you will refuse treatment. We just work out of the nice guidance. But don't do anything weird. You know, I've seen people um, that have gone to private clinics and been given ketamine for their resistant depression. Well, why would you do that? And then, you know, I'm just giving hormones. And when I give hormones to these people, they feel better. And, you know, so so it's just weird, I'm afraid. There's no other word for it, unfortunately. Can I just say, we are personally very glad that you are mouthy and you are fighting the system because I am one of those women that you've spoken to who was offered uh, antidepressants by two different GPs before I finally spent a year battling to get HRT. Gang, just to let you know, this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. So, what is BetterHelp? Well, it's online therapy, Ems. BetterHelp matches you to one of 32,000 licensed therapists based on your location and your preferences. And then you can access therapy from your laptop or your phone. Now, you've had therapy, haven't you, Ems? And you're quite happy to talk about it too. 
Yeah, and it's really important to talk about it because it has helped me and it has helped so many people. And we talk about mental health all the time on our podcast, don't we? Because my mental health wasn't awful, but it went crashing downhill after I hit what I thought was the midlife crisis and then got even worse when I was actually perimenopausal. And I so benefited from seeing a therapist. It massively, massively helped. If you could sum it up in one sentence, what therapy's done for you. Can you sum it up in one sentence, like how beneficial it's been? It's helped me appreciate the goodness in myself and the goodness in the world, I think. Mm. It's helped me not to dwell on the negative. Love that. To find out more about it and to get 10% off your first month, head to betterhelp.com slash effinghormones. That's betterhelp.com slash effinghormones. <laughs> Right, let's open this out to the FN Hormones gang now. And some of our listeners have been getting in touch too with their thoughts, including Deborah. So let's hear from her now. Hi, Deborah here, long time listener to FN Hormones, big fan. My question is how to speak to a GP and get a GP to listen about symptoms and potential treatments for perimenopause and menopause, given that the experiences of with GPs is quite varied and it depends entirely who you speak to, where you are in the country, your GP, their experience with women's health in general, menopause, perimenopause and just being able to maximise that very short window of a GP appointment to get the most out of it. Any tips you could give would be most welcome. So I think it's really important before going even to make the appointment, find out if there's someone in the surgery who does have a special interest in um, the menopause. And it might be not the GP, it might be a nurse. Sometimes there's pharmacists working in the surgery. So just see if there is anybody. And I know some women have even gone to local Facebook groups and found out, you know, who's the person um, to see. So if you could do the work before. The other thing that's worth doing is actually... um, Doing a symptom questionnaire, so there's one on the Balance app, the free Balance app that we've we've created, and on that you can put your symptoms, but you can also monitor if you've got periods or not, and it creates a health report. So I would suggest strongly that you download that, print it off, or you can email it in advance to your doctor, because that really reduces the length of consultation, because you can imagine 10 minutes as a GP appointment, if someone comes to me and says, oh, I've got some memory problems and I'm feeling a bit sad and oh I've got some urinary symptoms and some headaches and it it all gets a bit overwhelming and you can't then pick out because then you're thinking well is this person depressed have they got arthritis have they got a urinary tract infection have they got a brain tumor they've got headache and memory problems so it's all a bit whereas if you've done your homework as a patient beforehand and go and say look I've got all these symptoms I'm now 46 or whatever my periods have started changing or they stopped I feel a lot of my symptoms, if not all, could be due to my menopause or perimenopause, and I'd like to talk to you about treatment choices, including HRT. Then that's actually only 20 seconds of your consultation. So you've then got nine and a half minutes to really get in there, rather than the GP asking all these questions. And then if you've also done your homework, you can say, well, I've also read the NICE guidance, and I know that for most women there are more benefits and risks from HRT. And I know that it's beneficial for reducing risk of heart disease and osteoporosis and other conditions as well. So actually, I would really like to try it. And I've read that through the skin, oestrogen is safer because there's no risk of clot or stroke. I'd like to have the micronized progesterone because that's body identical. Um, and because, you know, I'm not having periods anymore, I just take one a day. So could I try that first? And then I can come back and maybe have another discussion if I need some testosterone or whatever. So again, that's only taken you another two minutes. So then you've got eight minutes of your consultation to really set the tone. And then if it is that you're getting his hostility or you're being knocked back, that's the time where you say, well, I can see we're not getting any further in this consultation and I'm really not going to waste your time. But could you let me know who else I can see? Because this is really important to me, not just to improve my symptoms, but to help my future health. Um, So, you know, I don't want to fall out with you, but I would like to know who else because... Uh, I can see the other nice guidance that's really worth quoting is the shared decision-making guidance that came out in June last year. Um, and that is really about sharing your decisions. So even if the healthcare professional is saying, no, 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 
you as a as a patient are allowed to have a different opinion to a healthcare professional and you can justify it so that's the other thing if they keep saying no you can say well I've also read the shared decision making guidance and I know that there might be some risks of HRT but I also know there are benefits and I'm prepared to take any risks because I would like to try the benefits the other thing is also to remind ourselves that HRT is not a tattoo it's not permanent so all of us can try it for three or four months and see if it helps so you know when I started having symptoms I didn't know whether my migraines were worse because I was tired and working too hard or whether it was related to my hormones but you know you try these things and see and then you can see how you improve so I think it's it's being your own advocate is really important and that's hard I mean I'm sounding like it's really easy on it and my mind is clear and I'm not stressed and I can think that my memory is fine Whereas when you're menopausal or perimenopausal, a lot of us just crumble and we just don't know what to say. So you could write it down or you could get a friend to come with you. That All those things can help. A lot of the time when people see a GP, the GP often says there's a cancer risk and that's why they're not, they don't want to give HRT. What do you see to say to women who have a family history of, say, breast cancer about accessing HRT? Well, I think we need to look at the evidence here about breast cancer risk. And um, I can show you a paper that you can share with your listeners that just came out um, a few weeks ago, actually, which just looks at the evidence. It's not written by me. (laughs) Um, So if we look at this, so if you look at oestrogen on its own, so if someone's had a hysterectomy and only have oestrogen, then the study, even the scary WHI study, has shown that women have a 22% lower risk of breast cancer if they develop um, breast cancer on HRT. So estrogen seems to be protective of developing breast cancer. Then you look at the risk. The risk is with the synthetic progestogen, so the older types of progesterone. um, There might be a small risk, but again, look at the evidence. There's not a statistically significant increased risk. If you look at the worst study, because everyone can play with numbers and statistics, if you look at the write-up of the worst figures, the risk that there is with breast cancer is actually lower than other risks for breast cancer, such as drinking a couple of glasses of wine most nights, such as not exercising, such as being overweight. So if you play that into an equation, actually, a lot of women who take HRT find that they drink less alcohol, they exercise more, they lose weight. So that balance is going to shift anyway. The other thing is, is that any type of HRT has been shown to be associated with a lower risk of dying from breast cancer. So I would actually say, do you know what, I have a one in seven chance of breast cancer whether I take HRT or not. But I also know that most women die from heart disease and dementia and we know women who take HRT have a lower risk of that. Good study from Cochrane has shown that there's a 50% reduction in heart disease. So actually that's again about choice as well. And a lot of it is misinterpretation of the data because healthcare professionals as well as women have been told for 20 years that HRT causes breast cancer. And sadly, the MHRA that links our prescribing data with warnings still says risk of breast cancer, even with oestrogen. There isn't any evidence that that's the case. We also know that, you know, the body identical hormones are safer for lots of reasons, but the risk of cancer is lower than with the contraceptive pill, which is given out like Smarties. So we've got to sort of, risk is a really hard word, isn't it? What does that mean? But when you quantify it, it's still really, really low. Yeah, thank you for, for explaining all that, Louise. I'm someone that didn't take it for a year after I really needed it because sadly my sister died from breast cancer and always said to me, oh, Emma, you can't possibly take it. I don't want you to get breast cancer as well. Um, but I think by the end she realised as well that, that, that research was failed. But what would you say to people who, for whatever reason, don't want to take HRT but want to do something to relieve their symptoms? What, what are the alternatives that would work? Yeah, I think it's it's a really interesting question because lots of people think it's HRT or nothing or HRT is, is everything, whereas actually HRT is just one part of the treatment. So there's no point, for example, me taking HRT and smoking 20 a day and having a bottle of wine every time I come home from work and sitting on the sofa and not exercising because I'm still going to then increase my risk of heart disease, osteoporosis, dementia and so forth by my lifestyle. So it's very important that we look at everything. Now, there isn't an alternative to having your own hormones back. 
you just can't do it you know there's there's lots of things marketed as supplements or phytoestrogens or various foods but you have to eat so many or have so many you just can't do it once our ovaries stop producing hormones the only way of getting our hormones back is with hrt a lot of people think they can't take it or have been told they can't take it and probably can so for example women like you say with a family history of, of, of cancer or breast cancer women who've had a clot in the past women who have migraines um, all these women can usually safely take hrt if you want something for symptoms and you don't want to take hrt then very few supplements have really been shown to have evidence behind them um, the ones that contain phytoestrogens actually stimulate the estrogen receptor. So in my mind, you might as well take HRT and, and have a proper evidence-based treatment. Some treatments like sage, black cohosh, red clover might or might help not help, but some of them, there can be risks as well. Lifestyle makes a big difference. So we know that drinking less alcohol, drinking less um, hot uh, caffeinated drinks, eating less spicy foods can reduce hot flushings. But... We know from using looking at data with balance, but just in general, that the commonest symptoms are actually memory problems, brain fog, anxiety. So there's all this thing, you know, Primark have just started selling underwear, haven't they? Or clothes for the menopause. There's menopause face creams and shampoo. It's all marketing because actually most women don't really care about their flushes. They care about their brain. You know, we want to work. We want to use our brains. There's too many of us are giving up our jobs and, you know, not able to function. So... We need to think about what the symptoms are, but then it's also about looking at your future health because menopausal women are, far, are more likely to have heart disease, osteoporosis, diabetes, dementia. So we need to look at lifestyle and maybe supplements if that's what we want to do to help that. So vitamin D, we should all be taking through our bones. A good quality magnesium supplement, some people find useful, especially for migraines and headaches. Good quality fish oil with omega-3 can be really useful. But that's for future health rather than for symptoms, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm going to immediately go and top up my supplements. Uh, right, time now to hear from another member of the Effin Hormones gang who's uh, got in touch with us. Hi ladies, my name's Sarah Wilshire and I'm the founder of Caution Menopause at Work. I offer training and coaching for businesses so that they can help navigate perimenopause and menopause in their workplace. So my question for Louise is why on earth is testosterone so difficult for women to get their hands on in the UK when they produce more of it than they do oestrogen? Today that's a great question isn't it and I wish I had an easy answer but you know 10 years ago I didn't even know women produced testosterone no one taught me at medical school no one taught me at school I didn't know we just all know estrogens for the women and testosterone's for the men but how wrong is that because actually men produce a bit of estrogen as well so um it, it what's really frustrating is it's not licensed and I think it's completely scandalous and barbaric actually that we're not allowed our own hormone back as an NHS prescription um the, one of the problems is is there haven't been loads of really good studies on it most of the studies have been looking at libido and don't get me wrong libido is really important but as I've already said our brain function is probably more important than our libido and most uh, menopausal and perimenopausal women have libido problems at some stage, but that's also linked with symptoms. You know, if you're feeling tired and worn out and you put on weight and everything else, of course sex isn't going to be top of your list. But um, so the studies have looked at libido and find that there is an improvement and nice say that we are allowed to consider testosterone replacement if women have reduced sexual desire despite being on HRT. So that's actually quite a lot of my patients. We also find, just from our patients, that women who take HRT often find that their mood, energy, concentration, stamina, muscle strength um, improve as well. Um, it's not nicer to be using this, this, this way. So the way we can use testosterone, um, it has to be off license. So that isn't actually a bad thing. There's lots of things we prescribe for a different indication. Um, but the only way you can get testosterone on the NHS is having male testosterone in lower doses because of course men are allowed their own hormone back. Um, there is another type of testosterone that's made for women in Australia that we can prescribe privately. It costs about a pound a day. Um, there is a move to try and get it prescribed but um, or get it licensed on the NHS but a lot, there's quite a few people out there who 
as in other menopause specialists who actually don't seem to like testosterone. And um, we've heard from other specialists that it's the same as placebo. So someone told me recently, I might as well just send a birthday card to all my patients and I'll get the same response. Well, I find that really difficult to believe because my patients for a start would not pay for something that didn't work. And, um, you know, a lot of women do find it improves symptoms. I know I couldn't work without testosterone. My my night sweats improved with estrogen, but my brain didn't work and my stamina didn't improve. Um, obviously, that's just me, but we've now got thousands of women taking testosterone who say similar things and we're looking at all the data now, analysing it properly. Um, I'm hoping it will change, but I think a lot of it will change because, because, like most things, women are going to be the voice behind this and... You know, women shouldn't be standing for that. I think it's I think it's awful, isn't it, that we're not allowed a hormone, even if it's only for libido. Well, I'm really sorry. Why why can we not have our libido improved? Men can go and buy Viagra over the counter, which actually has more of contraindications than testosterone. You know, so I think even if you're just looking at you know libido, then why not? Why can't we have it? Yeah, here, here. <laughs> Well, I really hope this will be resigned to history and we'll all look back in a few years and go, oh my God, I can't believe there was a time when we couldn't get our hands on testosterone. We, we can't actually get hold of the rest of HRT at the moment, estrogen and um, like gels and things like that. So what are you, what are you saying to, to people who are struggling with their actual HRT? Because I know we can't get testosterone, but the actual HRT is unavailable at the moment and has been since March. I know, and it's a real problem because we did have an HRT czar who's now left and and some messaging is saying that there's no problem and there absolutely is a problem. Um, the problem is, is that demand has increased, quite rightly so actually, because it's gone just from sort of 10% to 14% of menopausal women, but in some areas, especially areas of deprivation, it's as low as 2%. And if more women take it, then obviously the demand is going to increase. The other thing is we know that it's safe to take HRT forever, so it's not a short-term fix. And some of the people have been looking at just the blip and they keep talking about a sort of a, a, a spike, like the whole COVID thing. Well, this isn't a spike, this is an escalation. So... Um, it's really difficult. The other problem also is that not all GPs can prescribe every single um, patch gel or tablet. On the, they don't have a standard formulary. So if I work in Manchester and my son works in Brighton, we work out of different um, uh, formulary. And so that makes it really hard um, for somebody. So if there's a shortage of gel, we can't always prescribe an alternative on the NHS. So there absolutely needs to be a national formulary. For the lay of us, could you explain what you mean by that? What that formulary is? It formulary. Yeah. So a for, so it's like a, a recipe basically. So it, there's lots of book. Uh, there's lots of HRT that's that's licensed and regulated, but each CCG, so each area, decide which ones they can we can prescribe and usually it's on cost but actually for HRT it's not often the more expensive HRT is down there but not some of the cheaper ones um, so that makes it very difficult so we're not allowed to prescribe some of the ones that are in stock so that's that's blocking us and then obviously for some people they just they haven't physically made enough or it's not distributed in the right areas um, so the drug companies are working on it but I think it's just not seen as a priority you know, if it was um, a heart disease drug or a statin, they wouldn't allow it to happen. But I think because it's just women, isn't it? So um, there is, it is a real problem. That's the third time steam's come out of my ears. <laughs> <laughs> the more we talk about the menopause, the angrier we get. Right, let's talk now about the menopause conversation in the UK and what's been happening a bit about on the political side too because so much has happened, hasn't it, since we launched Effing Hormones back in 2021. Uh, and we, of course, saw you in that groundbreaking documentary with Davina McCall. Uh, we want to kick this off with another Effing Hormones listener because her question really sets this up. Hi, I'm Carrie, and I'd like to ask, what can we do so that the next generation doesn't have to feel like we have in regards to perimenopause and not having known anything about it before it hit us. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to be prepared as much as possible. And um, I think I was, I've just been reading a book actually, um, and it's from 1966. And it's talking about menopause should be completely preventable because it's a preventable and treatable disease. And 
you know, that's so long ago and it's still, we're still here the same, aren't we? We can't keep happening like this. So I think, you know, my children, my older children who are 19 and 18, no, they can recognise menopause or women, they can talk about it, they can talk to their friends and their friends' mothers. We, we need to have this conversation early. We can't wait till we're all suffering and giving up our jobs and being, being not listened to. So I think that's really important, it's getting the information, but getting good quality information out there. But then I think we also need to normalise HRT. There's, a lot, there's so much of a battle to get there, but also a lot of people... And a lot of communities, it's still seen as a failure to take HRT. It's like you're giving in to something. And one of my patients today, I saw this, is a farmer. And she said they never talk about it in her community because they just get on with stuff. They're used to getting up early and getting out there and really working hard. But she's actually, had her main problem was, as well as oestrogen deficiency, was testosterone because she couldn't lift the hay bales, she couldn't work manually as much as she could, um, or she can now, she's got testosterone back. But she said it's a really, once you start that conversation, people don't initially want to talk about it, and then they're very grateful. But we need to just not talk about it. I think what I get frustrated is all the companies and organisations and platforms, they're talking about it. Well... You know what? Let's just get some action. Actually, let's just see it so that women are improving. Because then we don't have to have menopause policies in the workplace. We don't have to have time off work for our menopause or flexible working. We can just crack on, can't we? So I think it's really important. We need to have better access for treatment, and we need to just not have this resistance to what women want. I'm still sort of stuck on the word disease which I know you were saying you it was a book from 1969, but is it seen as a disease? I mean, I know disease is disease, but like... Yeah, well, it's a really interesting question, actually, because that's the problem, it's not. And if you look, when they discovered hormones um, many years ago, when they discovered insulin, they associated with it disease. So lack of insulin is diabetes, as you know. When they discovered thyroxine, it was labelled a disease because lack of thyroxine is hypothyroidism. When they discovered oestrogen, they associate it with hot flushes. So therefore, lack of oestrogen is hot flushes. But if you look at what's the definition of disease and you look at things like raised blood pressure, hypertension, doesn't cause symptoms, but we treated it because it's associated with an increased risk of heart disease and stroke. You could argue that obesity is a disease because people who are obese have an increased risk of heart disease, diabetes, and also most cancers as well. The commonest cause it's overtaken smoking, hasn't it, is obesity. So if you look at menopause, which is a hormone deficiency, there is an increased risk of heart disease, osteoporosis, diabetes, dementia, um, and other conditions as well. So you could say that it is a disease because if you treat it properly, you're reducing the risk of all these other diseases. And and I think until it's taken seriously, it's never going to be up there in the agenda because people think it's just full of whinging women who just can't cope with what they're given. And that's completely wrong because in my mind, whether you have symptoms or not, you, well, not in my mind, it's a fact, but if you have symptoms or not, you've got no hormones that are associated with risk of disease. Okay. Right, we have a final question from a FN Hormones listener, and this is a question from Alison. Hi, Dr Newson, I'm Alison from Glasgow. Um, I would love to know, how many times a day do you bang your head off a wall and scream? <laughs> no, I'm, this is my serious question. Is there any way that you feel the NHS would make your fabulous free training mandatory within the practices of NHS? Um from personal experience, I was left with no choice but to go private and I just feel so many more could benefit from the training. I know thousands have, but we could do with more. Thank you. Yeah, the problem is, there's a couple of problems here, is that making anything mandatory is really difficult, actually. And um, um, so I don't, I don't know how easy that is to do. And we've certainly had lots of meetings talking about it. There's been a lot of pushback. And... Um, one of the reasons that I decided to make the education programme free was so that people could access it as much as possible. But the other problem is there's still a lot of pushback um, about it because people think, well, it's all about promoting HRT and isn't that awful. But actually it's not. You know, we have 
lectures on there from all sorts of specialists and it's all linked to the evidence. But we have had over 26,000 people that have downloaded it who are healthcare professionals over the last year. So we are making some progress and I was talking to Health Education England this morning and it is available through their website. So I think, um, I think it will come and actually I was presenting some data at the Royal College of GPs conference this year, some of the research, because we're doing a lot of research and a lot of um, GPs actually came up to me and frankly, and I wasn't there wanting any publicity, I was just literally getting my head down, going to the lecture theatre, going to the toilet, wanting to leave because I had to go to another conference. People actually stopped me and a lot of them actually were young GPs and a lot of male GPs, quite a few who were Asian and black, stopped me and said, Louise, I just want a selfie with you. It's amazing what you're doing. This is so cool. You've transformed the way I think about the menopause. And and that's amazing, actually, because they're the new generation, aren't they? You know, they're the ones that can really make a difference. So when I talk about the haters, they're often not people like that. So we want young people to be on board. Um, but also we're doing a lot of work with pharmacists and nurses as well, because I think, you know, we've talked a lot in this podcast about GPs, but I think it's more like pharmacists and nurses are the way to go with a lot of this. You know, I'm really happy to take it away from GPs and give it to people who really want to help and We've got a lot of pharmacists and nurses who work with us in the clinic and do a lot of training, and they're brilliant, actually. Um, and also, they often have a bit more time in a consultation, so that can really help women, too. I was speaking to the uh, pharmacist at my GP last week, and she just started your book, and she was signing up to your training, and she was very excited about it, actually. So Great. Yeah. Right, Louise, I don't know if you know this or not, uh, but we always ask our guests to nominate their Perry or Menno hero for an effing award. Now, forget the Oscars, uh, forget the BAFTAs, everybody wants to get their hand on one of these, an effing. Uh, so the idea is would people nominate a mate who's helped through the menopause, maybe a medical professional who's been particularly brilliant, maybe someone in the public eye. Uh, but this time we decided we would turn the tables and we wouldn't ask you to nominate someone because we all want to nominate you Forward oh, effing, just to say thank you so much for everything you have done and are continuing to do for women across the world, really. So, oh, that's very kind. Thank you. <laughs> no, seriously, thank you so much. And we're not joking when we say we almost mention you in every single episode of Effing Hormones because we talk about the balance app, we've talked about the, the you know, the documentaries. Honestly, oh, thank, thank you very you. much. Well, it's great that you're doing this podcast and you know, making it accessible because that's really important. That People have different platforms to go to that, you know, know that they can listen to something that's going to help them because that's the most important thing, isn't it? Amen. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Louise, you're awesome. Well, and that is it for this episode of Effin Hormones. You will hear from us again towards the end of November. Uh, and of course, keep an eye out at the Effin Hormones socials for that. You can find those details at effinhormones.com. And a quick reminder, if you can chuck us a few quid to help us keep Effin Hormones going, we would be really grateful. Just go to effinhormones.com and you can check out the Being an Effin Star box. And if you click on a star, that will take you right through to the donation page. Thank you so much. We love you. Bye. Woo. Thank you. Love you. Woo. Woo. Bye. <laughs> See ya. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Hasta la vista.